Welcome back. This is the second season of the show, and I'm delighted to announce that with this episode, Home is joining the Boing Boing Podcast Network. Boing Boing is one of the original sites to chronicle online culture, and I think it's still the best one doing it. It's a lively, funny, captivating place where smart people talk and write about interesting things. I couldn't be happier to be joining a lineup that includes excellent programs like You Are Not So Smart, Utility Closet, and Gweek. And so, with that, this is Home, Stories from L.A. I'm Bill Barol. I want to start this season with a story that is about a home, but isn't, strictly speaking, from L.A. You could say that it has its roots in a tangle of events that ultimately led to me being in L.A., but honestly, that'd be a reach. The truth is simpler than that. It's a story I want to tell because, as personal as it is, it's as close to a really universal story as I'll ever write. My mom once told my sister that it was in Europe, in the years after the war, that her life began. And although that wasn't literally true, she was born in Philadelphia as I was, it felt true to her, emotionally true, so why not start there? She was a young bride, my dad an army doctor, and in Paris and the devastated ruins of Hamburg, she discovered the wider world and came alive to its possibilities. She always did love to travel, and in all of her travel, she acquired millions of things, tiny things, tiny, delicate things, whole complete sets of salesman's samples of household china, perfect in miniature, silver match safes, plaster cherubs, mismatched bits of porcelain that caught her eye, and bigger things, end tables, lamps, an enormous intricately inlaid desk, paintings, prints, engravings, a blanket chest, another one, a third, I think. A few years after they returned from Europe, my mom and dad bought a house in the West Oak Lane section of Philadelphia, and my dad opened his pediatric practice. My sister came along a few years later. And then, another few years later, me. They raised their kids, drove carpool, ran the practice, made friends, lost them, sent us off to college. And over the decades, they moved, and moved their stuff, from domicile to domicile. From the house in West Oak Lane to a row house downtown, with an annex on the Jersey Shore. Things came in, things went out. Much more the first than the second, to be honest. And then my mom's world, the one that had once seemed illimitable, began to shrink. The row house and it was stuffed with her precious things by then, became too much to keep up, and its steep stairs too difficult to navigate. She and my dad moved to an apartment. Most of her things made the move, but some of them went into storage in my sister's house in Massachusetts. My dad got sick and died. Mom moved to another apartment. It was just too painful for her to stay, and she lived there on her own until she couldn't anymore, and then she had help. And her horizons drew in closer and closer. We prevailed upon her to give up her car. The house in New Jersey got sold. And the margins of her world continued to draw in tighter. Once they'd stretched to Europe and beyond. Now they dwindled to Center City, Philadelphia. And then, 
to just the neighborhood around Rittenhouse Square. 19th floor, please watch your Going up. And then to this apartment. And not much more of the outside world than a balcony, 19 stories over Chestnut Street. And then to her apartment and this hallway, where she'd walk with a caregiver. And then to this apartment. And then just this bedroom. And then. She died a few days before Christmas. My sister and I sat there in an apartment that was in one sense empty, and in another, so very not empty, so the opposite of empty. It overflowed with the keepsakes and mementos of a lifetime, which presented us with a practical dilemma, and we were going to have to face it squarely sooner or later. Our mom had not been the type to clean house or downsize in the name of making things easier for her heirs. So, what were we going to do with all this stuff? The kitchenware, that was no problem. My niece, Molly, is in the process of setting up a new apartment. She'd take the lot, or close to it. The photographs and family papers, a no-brainer. Of course we'd keep those. A few odds and ends, some moms, some dads, that had special meaning to each of us. We'd hold on to those and treasure them. Some of the paintings and furniture qualified as fine or decorative art, and those we could send to an auction house, but that was a little down the road. The immediate problem was... What about the rest of it? What about the 17 million things that mom had lovingly hand curated over so many years, practical things like clothing and handbags, and all the impractical things that she held so tightly because they were so cloaked in meaning for her? Her taste wasn't our taste, and neither of us lives in Philadelphia. I did a little quick research and discovered how difficult, how surprisingly difficult it is, to get charities to come in and collect donations. Some don't do pickups anymore. Some do, but need advance notice, a lot of it. And they ask for photographs of every individual item. Despair started to creep in. We were going to drown in a sea of our mother's possessions. And that's when I found it. It was the answer to our problem. It was so simple. I'm Brian from 1-800-GOT-JUNK. This is my main man, Tom, and my other main man, Tom. You never know how much junk you've got until you move. Point to something you wish would disappear. Would it be possible to... It's gone! All you have to do is point. <laughs> now, let me be clear. This would have absolutely horrified our mother. The name alone would have horrified her. But we were in a jam. We had lives elsewhere, houses filled with our own stuff, and the clock was ticking. We set up an appointment for the next day. It was the day before Christmas Eve. As young parents all over the globe were stealthily carrying things into their own homes, things their kids would treasure for years or at least hold fond memories of, as all that was going on, my sister and I took deep breaths 
and started stuffing the precious detritus of our mother's long life into green plastic trash bags. We took some comfort in knowing that, according to company policy, a part of what 1-800-GOT-JUNK took out would be donated to charity. I hope it was. A lot of it was actual, literal junk. You wouldn't believe how many wire hangers a woman in her 90s has in her closet. But there were an awful lot of clothes hanging on those hangers. Warm winter coats, raincoats, sweaters, pants, tops. And then, as we dug deeper into the past, things that neither one of us could ever remember seeing her wear. A black beaded cocktail dress. An ostrich handbag lovingly wrapped in tissue and sealed in plastic. A little satin clutch purse. Into the bags. Onto the pile. And the pile grew. And grew. And grew. Did we feel good about this? No. But I have to be honest, we didn't exactly feel bad about it either. There was something freeing about it. Something like the sensation of lifting, of unburdening you get when you clean out your sock drawer. But on a vastly grander and messier scale. These weren't socks. And the drawer was our mother's life. We filled bag after bag. I don't know how many giant plastic garbage bags there are in a roll, but we used a roll, a giant heavy thing 10 inches across, and then we started in on another. Clothes. Papers. We filled boxes with books about art and history. Every once in a while, one of us would stop, pause, think, wander into the other room and say something like, You know, there's some awfully good stuff here. Should we be... And then the thought would hang there. Should we be what? Meticulously hand-classifying every little thing for separate disposal in 26 different venues? That would take time we didn't have, and focus we needed to place elsewhere. We had to be, in a way, ruthless. The task was enormous, and the trade-off was between practicality and sentiment. So we'd look at each other and nod, and peel another trash bag off the roll. The crew showed up at 10 the next morning. Two young guys, one big and burly, the other smaller and slimmer, more of a managerial type, and they started carrying things out the door. They filled an 8 by 10 foot truck, drove it away, came back, halfway filled it again. The bags, of course, there might have been 50 of them, I really have no idea. And the boxes. The bedroom love seat, the living room sofa, the armchair and ottoman I'd slept on a few nights when my dad was dying. The new queen-size bed I'd ordered for mom four days before she died, the box spring still shrouded in plastic. Are you sure, the big and burly guy started to say, and my sister and I nodded decisively. Yes, we were sure. Okay, he shrugged and dragged it off down the long hallway to the service elevator. They carried things out for five hours. Then they ran my credit card for the charges, thanked us for the tip, wished us a Merry Christmas, and were gone. The apartment seemed still pretty full, honestly. My sister and I took a long look around, and then we closed the door behind us and went to dinner. It was astonishing to us how emptied out the place didn't look. A truck and a half's worth of stuff hadn't made much of a dent, visually speaking. All we'd done was peel away the top layer. 
My sister and I will reconvene in Philadelphia in a few weeks, and the auctioneers will come in, and they'll take the rest. And then the place really will be empty. Here's what I can't figure out. That apartment was my mother's home. The first thing to go out the door was, not to put too fine a point on it, her. But it didn't stop feeling like her home when the guys from the crematory came to take her away. I know that the moment when it will stop feeling like her home to my sister and me is when the last of her belongings is finally carted off and the walls are blank and the sound of our footsteps echoes on the bare wood floors. So what I wonder is, is it stuff that makes a home? I don't want to believe that. It feels unhealthy. If anything, my mom was too attached to it all. I kept telling myself as I stuffed handbags and sweaters and shoes into garbage bags that the lesson was so obvious. It's silly to be attached to things because ultimately everything you own is garbage. Ultimately everything you own gets stuffed into trash bags for 1-800-GOT-JUNK. The night before we all left town, my brother-in-law brought out a dozen bottles of red wine that had been gathering dust in a wine rack in a closet. They were the bottles that had been, famously in our family, too good to drink, some of them dating back to the 1970s, when Mom and Dad were at the crest of their lives. One by one, we opened them, wrestled the corks from them, and tasted them. They'd gone bad, everyone. There had been a moment when they were at their peaks, but that moment had passed a long time ago, while my mom's attention was elsewhere. Why hadn't she drunk them when she had the chance? I found myself growing angry at the waste of it. And from there, it was a quick jump to the waste of it all, the years she'd spent in anger and bitterness, surrounded by all this stuff. Now, I like to collect things too, but I tell myself that my stuff has more meaning because it has more utility. I own eight ukuleles, which is approximately seven more than someone who plays as badly as I do needs. But, and this is the point, I play them. I own dozens of library-bound volumes of Life magazine going back to the late 30s, and I read them. I collect old Polaroid cameras, and, yes, I shoot pictures with them. That's what I told myself that night in her apartment. As if it were really that simple. As if usefulness were really all that matters. We love the things we love because they bind us to our own histories, even when, especially when, our grip on those histories starts to slip. Memory is such a fragile thing, so vulnerable to the predations of time. My mom held on for so long to so many little pieces because they anchored her to the younger, happier, freer days in a life whose limits, as she grew older, increasingly frustrated and angered her. You're taking everything away from me, she told me and my sister a few years before she died. The way we saw it, it was time that was taking things away. Her health, her mobility, her independence. And finally time took everything and walked out the door. So we poured the wine down the drain. At some point it had become incidental because the bottles had become totems, they'd become objects of desire, desire for a life that wasn't coming back. You could say the same for the handbag she didn't carry, the shoes she didn't wear, the china she didn't serve on. Maybe the reason my mother's stuff seemed so much a part, the biggest part, of what made that apartment feel to us like her home, is that we knew that. 
For my mom, those things had stopped being what they were a long time ago and had slipped one by one into a long march of memory until memory was all she had. A story she told herself about a life. I like to imagine her stuff finding its way back into the world. I like that for whoever comes to possess it next, however it may come into their hands, it'll just be stuff. Glassware, coats, bags. Some family may yet eat off the good china. I hope they do. And I hope someday they'll remember that meal, the way they sat around the table and laughed. Some young woman may yet wear that black beaded cocktail dress and look great in it. I hope she does. And when she does, I like the idea that she'll write her own story.